exciting and busy weekend for some of the younger couples at Woodhaven. Um, some of you are aware that uh, Tyler uh, and Lauren, uh, now Balecki, got married yesterday, and uh, they're headed out on their honeymoon tomorrow. So um, when you see them when they get back, tell them congratulations. And then, of course, uh, Tyler's good friend Eric, his fiance Kelsey, uh, they've been attending for a while, but obviously you saw Kelsey get baptized this morning, and they're getting married uh, next summer as well. So uh, some exciting things happening for, for them, and uh, it's just great to see uh, what the Lord is doing here at our church body. Um, you can open up your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1. That's where we'll be this morning. Ephesians 1. When I was in seminary, grad school, uh, years ago, I took a class that was called prayer. And it, I don't know that most schools have an entire class devoted to the topic of prayer, but that was it. Um, there were reading assignments, you know, we read books about prayer, and I think we had to write a, a paper or two on the subject of prayer and what the Bible has to say about prayer. But there was one really interesting ongoing assignment for this particular class. You were supposed to pray for one hour a day, five days a week while you were in this class. And you had to keep a log of it. And each week you had to write a little journal entry about what you had learned about your experience of praying for one straight hour a day for five days out of every week. Now, I'm sure when some of you hear that, you think, oh, that's legalistic. How can you require people to pray like that? And I understand some of the sentiment behind that, but I actually found it to be one of the most helpful assignments that I had while I was in school. When you build time into your schedule and you say, I am going to pray for one straight hour from five to six in the afternoon on this day, and you give yourself to that hour of prayer, what happens is, is it provides a framework for you and your love and your affection for God and your experience of prayer are actually able to grow because you have you've set the time aside to do that. That really gave new life and growth to, to my prayer life and to my understanding of prayer. So think of that hour of required prayer as sort of like an irrigation canal that carries the water from the source to the field. And the irrigation canal directs the water and it gives it the opportunity to make it to the field rather than just spilling out all over the ground and getting soaked up into the ground and evaporated by the air. It gives it direction. It gives it purpose. It gives it the opportunity to do what it's supposed to do. And as I think back on that experience, um, one of the most challenging things, surprisingly enough, about praying for an hour a day is, what am I going to say? <laughs> An hour is a long time, and I don't know if maybe some of you consistently pray for an hour a day, and I don't know if you've ever committed to doing that, um, but early on, you know, five, ten minutes in, I'm going, okay, like, what do we talk about now? What's going to happen here? And I think some of the reason for that is most of us reduce prayer down to a list of physical health needs for others, and there's certainly nothing wrong with praying for physical needs, and we should do that. But that sort of encapsulates all of our prayer lives and, and how we pray for others. But it's interesting, when you go to the Bible and you read prayers recorded in the Bible, most of them by the Apostle Paul, but there are certainly others in the Old Testament, you don't read often, if ever, 
about Paul or others praying for physical health needs. It's just not there. They don't do it. Doesn't mean it's wrong, but it's not the practice of the biblical authors to pray that way. And so I think some of our struggle with prayer and some of the reason that I couldn't consistently pray for an hour, at least initially, is that we really don't know how to pray well, and we don't know exactly biblically what to pray for. We don't pray as the Bible teaches us to pray. We sort of come up with our own way of doing it, rather than letting the Scriptures inform us. Well, in the book of Ephesians, there are two fantastic examples of prayers that Paul has recorded for for us, and you can learn so much from reading and and looking at and studying these prayers, and that's what I want to do this morning. One of them is in chapter 3, but the one we're going to look at is in chapter 1, verses 15 to 23, and Zach read that to us this morning. You can learn a lot from Paul's example here, and that's what I would like to do. So I want to motivate us through the Apostle Paul, through the words of Ephesians 1, I want to motivate us to pray more consistently and to know how to pray for one another. And I think if we really got a hold of this, it would make dramatic, a dramatic impact in the life of our church body if we prayed these requests for one another and not just for physical needs. So here's what we're going to see this morning. Three requests we should be praying for one another. Three requests we should be praying for one another because we are in Christ. Because together we are united with Christ And together, we are in him. And so because of that truth, we should be praying these requests for one another. The first one of these in verses 15 and 16 is that we should learn to thank God for his work in one another, to thank him for his work. Now, we spent the last month in chapter 1, verses 3 to 14. That sounds crazy when I say a month in in that passage, but that's what we did. We spent a month there. And we spent the entire time talking about the benefits and the blessings that we have because we're in Christ. Let me remind you of kind of the the setup for that whole passage in verse 3. Look back at Ephesians 1.3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And then verses 4 through 14 go on to list and enumerate those blessings and describe them in great detail. And so he's finished that in verse 14, and now, having listed all of those blessings and benefits, now he pauses and he turns in prayer to God and thanks him for what he's done and also continues to pray for the believers that have received these benefits. You can see in verse 15, look there, it connects back to the the one long sentence in verses 3 to 14. Verse 15, for this reason. Well, what reason, Paul? Because of everything that he's just talked about, because of all the blessings and all the benefits that we have in Christ, now he's going to pray. And so really, if you boil it down, what this prayer is, is it's Paul saying, I want you believers to recognize the benefits that you have, and I want you to appropriate those benefits. I want you to live out the benefits that you already have in Christ. It's a little bit like receiving a new sports car and taking it out for a spin and driving it and learning about it. How does it handle? What can this car do? 
I learn about all the fancy features of this new sports car. I don't just leave it in my driveway and admire it and look at it and say, oh, my new sports car's red. I bet it goes fast. No, I actually take it out and I use it. And that's what Paul is praying here, that in light of these benefits, that the Ephesians and that, that us as well, that we would use and appropriate these benefits. And he wants us to use these things because he's confident that we have them. Look at verse 15. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints. And so what he knows about the Ephesians is he knows, look, there's a vertical relationship with God. You have faith in the Lord Jesus, and there's a horizontal relationship with those who are also in Christ. You have love for all the saints. And I know of these things. I've heard of these things. They're true of you. And so because I know that you are the recipients of the benefits that I've outlined before, and I know that you're beginning to grow in Christ, look at verse 16. Because of all of that, I do not cease to give thanks for you remembering you in my prayers. He thanks God for them and for the work God has done. And then he says, I'm gonna, I'm gonna pray for you and I'm gonna pray that you'll, you'll use these benefits and that they'll make a difference in your life. So let me, let me ask you a question based on, on Paul's example here in verses 15 and 16. How often do you, how often do I thank God for his work in those around me? Paul has been attentive to the ways that the Ephesians are growing and they're changing. He sees their faith. He sees their love. He notices these things and he says, man, I am so thankful that God is at work in you. He's able to identify these. So what about you? Do you regularly spend time in prayer just thanking God for what he's doing? Thanking God that someone was baptized this morning and praying for continued growth. Can you pinpoint signs of grace in those around you? Or do you have an ongoing list of mental complaints about everybody around you? And you're attuned to the ways that people frustrate you, the ways people are sinning and not doing it quite right. Is your radar set to fault finder mode? where you see only problems and annoyances. And I would say instead of that, instead of talking with one another about shortcomings and difficulties and annoyances, maybe spend a few minutes going to God and saying, you know, obviously we're not all perfect, but man, I'm so thankful, Lord, because I see evidence of grace in so-and-so. And I'm so thankful and because I see that evidence of grace, here's what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna pray for further growth and further grace. That's exactly what Paul does here. And he says here, I do not cease to give thanks for you. Obviously, he's not praying every minute of every day, 24 hours a day. But what Paul says is, every time I pray, and I pray consistently, I'm going to lift you up. And I'm going to thank God for what he's doing. And I'm going to pray for continued growth in you. And what's amazing is that when you have gratitude for other people, and when you express that gratitude toward the Lord, it has a way of dissolving bitterness and frustration. It's hard to be frustrated with someone who you're thanking the Lord for their growth and for their evidence of grace. It's hard to be bitter towards someone 
If you're looking at them and going, man, they're not perfect, but Lord, you are working, and I see that, and I'm so thankful for it. So I would say as a church body, let's be grace detectives. Let's be on the lookout for God's gracious work in one another because it's there. Sometimes it's more evident than others, but it's there. Let's identify it, thank God for it, and pray for continued growth. That brings us to our second request, which is where Paul does pray for continued growth. The second request we should be praying for one another is ask God to open our hearts to the benefits that we already have in Christ. This is in verses 17 and then the first part of verse 18. And this is really the heart of the prayer. I mean, this is, a, this is actually one sentence too, right? So at this point in the, in the letter, Paul has really only written two sentences Verses 15 to 23 is one sentence, but this part of it is the heart of the prayer. He prays for them to appropriate the benefits that they have. You'll notice here, he doesn't pray for Aunt Betty's rash to get better. He doesn't pray for Uncle Tom's cat to stop with its digestive problems. No, look what he prays. Verses 17, that, I remember you in my prayers, that... The God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. He prays specifically that God would cause the Holy Spirit, who they have, remember we talked about this earlier, they've been sealed with the Spirit, the Spirit is inside of them, the Spirit possesses them at the moment of salvation, He prays for the Spirit to give them wisdom and revelation. Wisdom is the practical use, the practical application of the truth. So everything they've seen in verses 3 to 14, he prays that they would have the wisdom to be able to use these truths. Then he prays that they would have revelation, which is understanding that only God gives It's not talking about biblical revelation, that they would be inspired to write Scripture. It's talking about the Spirit opening their eyes to the knowledge of the truth that they've received. And both wisdom and revelation come to them, how? Look at verse 17. In the knowledge of Him. All of this practical understanding and knowledge comes as you know God better. And as you learn who he is, this is already something they've received. If you were to go back and look at verse 8, he says that God has lavished his grace upon them in all wisdom and insight. And so this is something they've already received. And now he's saying, I pray that God would just keep piling this onto you. And I pray that you would continue to grow in it. He's praying here that they would recognize what they already have. One commentator called this the prayer for people who already have everything. And I think that's right. That's what Paul's doing here. You've already got every benefit in Christ. Now I pray that you would realize that you have these benefits. But if you think about prayer as a whole, this is really how it works, right? Like we pray to God to do things that he has already promised to do. We pray for Jesus to come back. We want that. And God has already said, I'm going to return. I'm coming back to get you. And yet we in our hearts pray that that would happen and that it would happen quickly. And that promise, that that expectation, that knowledge that this will happen, that doesn't discourage us from praying. 
That doesn't make it, okay, well, prayer's no use. Why do, we, why do we even pray? God's already promised this. Actually, scripturally, now, we pray that that would happen because we're confident that it will happen. And God has promised that it will happen. He will do what he has said, and so we pray in line with that. And that's exactly how we pray for one another. He has promised his Holy Spirit, and he's promised to do the work, to complete the work that he's begun in each one of us. And so we look at each other and we say, man, God's begun the work, and so I'm going to pray that he will continue that work. I'm going to pray that you and I will be able to use the gifts of grace that we have received. So verse 17 gives us kind of God's perspective of this. And then the beginning of verse 18 gives us our perspective. What is it like to receive wisdom and revelation from God? Look at verse 18. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. Again, this is really the heart of the prayer. That our eyes would be enlightened. This past week, I was... um, doing a a parenting thing, trying to help my three-year-old Gray learn to ride a bicycle with training wheels. He got this new bike for his birthday, and he's been struggling with it. And so he he can't get the motion of the pedals down, right? So it's it's hard for him to figure out, I got to push forward. So what he ends up doing is pushing backwards, and that's the brakes. And so it doesn't go anywhere. And he's frustrated. And I'm frustrated because I fancy myself an amazing teacher, (laughs) particularly in how to ride a bike. And so, why can't you get this, you know? He just couldn't seem to do it. Well, so it's been interesting trying to help him learn this because I won't say that there was like a, a moment when it all became clear and he started riding his bike perfectly. But over the course of one evening this week, he started to make little steps in understanding. He would push the pedal the right way. He would stop pushing it backwards. And he got excited when he did it. And I got excited when he did it. And he sort of learned as the evening went on. And by the end of the evening, he was making small adjustments on his own and how he held his feet and how he was riding the bike. And he was really moving along pretty well. And it was exciting. I think that's exactly what Paul is praying for here. The eyes of your heart would be enlightened. You would begin to understand how these benefits work out in your life. And it's, it's not going to happen in one moment of Shekinah glory where you immediately grasp how the gospel applies to every single area of your life. But what he prays for and the way it works is that this will consistently be happening to you. God's spirit will be opening your eyes to see how these blessings make a difference in your life. And you'll grow in it from week to week. And you'll start to make adjustments on your own and you'll figure it out. And it'll be a gift of enlightenment from the Lord by the Spirit. And that's what he's praying for here. And that's what we should be praying for, for one another. That God will help us learn how to ride the bike and ride it well. And that we'll be in part of a a consistent and faithful process. We should pray that for one another. So that's the second request here. Ask God to open our hearts to the benefits that we already have in Christ. And now he's going to pray specifically for three ways for this to happen. Identify specific ways for the gospel to change us. So it's great to pray 
big and broad prayers that God will open our hearts and apply these truths in our lives. But here he says, actually, now I'm going to pray for specific ways that are connected back to the benefits of verses 3 to 14. And I want to see these ways work themselves out in your life. Specific applications. Look at verse 18. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know. So all three of these applications are things that come from knowledge. So he wants their knowledge to increase. But if you study the Bible, you know that this knowledge is not just being able to recount the facts. It's not the same thing as me giving Gray instruction on how to do this. Push the pedal this way. What this is, is it's experiential knowledge. It's Gray figuring it out through my teaching and understanding on his own how to do this. And so that's what Paul's praying for here, experiential knowledge. Grasp the significance of the benefits you have. Put them into practice and learn more and more how to apply these things. So what are these requests? Well, they each begin with the word what? They begin in verse 18, that you may know, here's the first one, what is the hope to which he has called you? Second, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And third, what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? And then the rest of this passage is just an explanation of that power, and we'll get to that in a couple of minutes. But let's look at these individually. First of all, he prays that they would know the hope of their calling. So we need to talk about that word hope for a second here. We use the word hope a lot. And I've heard Christians say about this word hope, they've, had, they've said something very, very negative about this word. It, it, they've said it's not like this. It's not like saying, biblical hope is not saying, I hope it will be a sunny day tomorrow. Or I hope my favorite sports team will win. And so Christians will say, well, hope is not a vague desire. It's, it's hope, biblical hope is a confident expectation in something that God has promised. And hope isn't just a vague desire. Biblical hope is not quite the same as saying, I hope the sun will be out tomorrow and that my favorite team will win. But you need to be careful when you talk about hope to not eliminate the expectation of something good happening from it. Part of hoping for a sunny day is, I want a sunny day tomorrow. I want, I would be delighted if my favorite sports team won. And we need to be careful that we don't make hope just, oh, well, it's something that's going to happen in the future, and I'm pretty sure of it because God promised it. That is true, but with that expectation is a delight and an anticipation and going, this is going to be good, and I am looking forward to this. That's biblical hope. I see the future as holding something good and something happy. And I'm excited about it. I read this explanation of it, and I thought this was so helpful, I wanted to share it with you. In hoping, a person delights in the future, welcomes it with enthusiasm, tastes it with the pleasure of anticipation because he sees excellent prospects of having what he wants. That's exactly right. And so Paul is praying here that our hope, our eager anticipation would be rooted in something. And what is that? 
Well, he wants us to understand the hope to which he has called you. It's the hope of God's calling. God has chosen us. He has adopted us. He has called us for a particular purpose. And that purpose is in chapter 1, verses 9 and 10. Look back there. He's making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. It's the goal of what God is doing. It's a hope and an eager anticipation of of that ultimate end when everything will be summed up in the Lord Jesus Christ. I look forward to and anticipate that time. Because before Christ, we were without hope. Chapter 2 and verse 12, look at this. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. No hope, no eager anticipation of the future before Christ, but having been chosen and adopted and believing in him, everything changed. Chapter 4 and verse 4. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. I mean, this is the end game of your call, of your adoption, of being chosen. Our hope, our eager anticipation is that we will be with God for all eternity, free from sin, and delighting in his presence. And all things will be under Christ's authority and lordship, and we will be his friend. So to hope in that calling means that this week, you and I delight in it. We welcome that with enthusiasm. It's not just that we know it's going to happen, but we taste it with pleasure, the pleasure of anticipation. And we taste it with the pleasure of anticipation because we see excellent prospects in the future for us. Things are going to go well for me because of God's calling. And I'm sure of that. And Paul knows that you and I need to grow in our grasp of that hope. Probably this morning, most of us are not filled with the delight of anticipation concerning the future, and that's okay. But Paul's praying here, and we ought to pray for one another, that we would grow in that delight and that anticipation and that taste of the future. What do we need? We need our hearts to be enlightened. We need to understand better what this calling means and how we can grow in delight in this calling. Man, think how that would radically change your life. If you and I could get a hold of that hope and that eager anticipation for the future, everything would be different. When you get that taste of joy, earthly life looks different. It doesn't mean you stop enjoying things on earth, but there's a greater pleasure and a greater joy that you are looking forward to, and it puts everything into perspective. And that's just one request that Paul prays. Look at the second one here. Secondly, in verse 18, he prays that they would know what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. 
Now, keep in mind here, we normally think of inheritance as something that we will receive. I'll get my inheritance from God when I'm with him. But that's not how Paul has been using this word inheritance here. When he uses it, he's saying that believers are God's inheritance. We belong to him. And he's keeping us and he's making us what we should be for that future hope, for his glory and for our delight. And so what Paul's praying here when he says, I pray that you would know what are the riches of his inheritance in us as his possession, what he's essentially praying for here is that you and I would know who we are. He would say, look, it is an amazing privilege to be God's possession and to be his inheritance. God has placed incredible value on you. So much so that he seals you with his spirit and he is keeping you for himself for the moment when you will stand before him. Now, it's not because you and I are intrinsically worthy and valuable on our own. Why are we his inheritance? Well, it's because we're in Christ. It's because we've been united with him. We've been buried with him in his death and raised with him in new life. And when God looks at us, he sees his son because we are in him. And so what that means is that our identity is that we are God's possession and he plans to display his glory through the church to everyone everywhere. Listen to chapter 3 and verse 10 of Ephesians. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. We are his inheritance and he is going to shape us and form us and display his glory to everyone, everywhere, all principalities and powers by the work that he has done. And so when you and I begin to grasp who we are, the inheritance that we are in Christ, it dramatically will shape the way we live. But we need the eyes of our hearts opened and enlightened to be able to see that. We don't see it on our own. We can't figure it out on our own. We need the Spirit to work in us and do that to us and slowly and steadily open our eyes to what God has done and who we now are in Him. And that's the second thing that he prays. The third one is found in verse 19. Third request here. And this one, of course, he extends all the way to verse 23. Verse 19, And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? I want you to notice there in verse 19 how he describes the greatness of God's power. It is immeasurable. So what he's saying here is, look, there's a, there's a, a scale of measurement and this so far exceeds and goes beyond that scale of measurement that it is immeasurable. It breaks the top off. You can't even understand how powerful it is in some ways. I was having a conversation the other night with one of our police officers that goes to this church, and I will not point him out because the conversation was over how far you could go beyond the speed limit without getting a ticket. <laughs> now, 
I am not here to report the results of that conversation because I do not want to encourage criminality among us. But I will say here, this word immeasurable is not describing going five miles per hour over the speed limit. That would be measurable. This word is describing the moment when that police officer is sitting on the side of I-75 with his radar gun out, and a car goes down I-75 going the speed of sound and breaks the sound barrier as he passes our police officer. Now, if you don't know, if you're not up on it, I had to look it up. The speed of sound is 767 miles per hour. There is no way, I don't think, that that radar gun would even be able to measure that volume of speed going down the road. And really, there's, there's no reason to think, it's ridiculous to think that any car would be able to travel that fast going down I-75 anyway. That's the term that's used here for God's power. It's immeasurable. It's almost ridiculous. It's so beyond the normal way that we think about power and the limits of that power that it is immeasurable. And so what he's saying here is the benefits and the resources that you and I have received because we are in Christ are shockingly abundant. They're almost ridiculous. They're immeasurable. So, I mean, how do you even begin to process that level of power that God is working out and using on our behalf? It's hard to understand, and I think that's why Paul goes into a bit of an explanation here in verses 20 to 23. So here's how he starts describing that power. It's the power that he worked in, verse 20, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. The same power that is at work on your behalf is the power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead, that gave new life to him, that made his heart start to beat again so that he could get up and walk out of that tomb. But it's also the same power that once he rose from the dead, seated him at the right hand of the Father. Look in verse 20. And seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Of course, the right hand of God is the place of power and authority. And so the power that Christ possesses, that God uses, is the same power that rules over everything. Look at verse 21. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. Anything, any power that is out there, any power you can identify, God's power is so far above that, it's immeasurable. Past or present. Anything that exists today, anything that will exist in the future, anything that has existed in the past, God's power reigns supreme over all. And what has he done with this power? Look at verse 22. And he put all things under his feet, under Christ, and gave him as head over all things to the church. And I want you to notice that phrasing there. This is important. So he's put all things under Christ's feet. Jesus is Lord of everything in the universe. But how does he use that power? He's head over all things to the church. 
And so Jesus Christ possesses all power and authority in the universe. And what purpose does he exercise that power for? For us. For the church. Why? Verse 23. Because the church is his body, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So what power is at work in you this morning if you're a believer? It's the same power that reigns over everything, every power, every principality, the power that gives new life to dead people, that installs Jesus as the authority over all at the Father's right hand, and it's the power that uses everything in the universe in order to keep you and grow you in sanctification and holiness. It's the power that will help you and I to realize our hope that will bring us to the end. That's a lot to be thankful for. As you look at this passage and into what Paul prays here, it's almost mind-numbing in some ways. But let's remember exactly what we're going for this morning. We want to pray these things for one another. We want to rejoice in these benefits for us, but man, we want to turn and we want to say, I thank God for his work among you. God, will you please open our hearts to the benefits we already have? And then God, will you work in these specific ways? Will you give us hope? Will you help us to understand who we are? And then will you help us to see and believe in the power that is at work in us to keep us and strengthen us and sanctify us to bring us all the way home to glory? Prayer is one of the means that God uses to work in our lives. I am negligent in this. I think this is a necessary means for our church body to grow in grace. God uses this for our good and his glory. So my encouragement this morning would be rejoice in these benefits and then let's use this gift of prayer for one another, for our good, and for God's glory. Let's pray. Father, we're so thankful for this model example prayer this morning. I pray that uh, you would stir our hearts with what we've seen this morning. Lord, we, we don't pray as we ought to, but help us to understand the gift that is prayer, that we can approach your throne, the highest throne in all the universe, the throne with all the power that exists, and we can, as a child approaches a father, we can ask you for things. We can seek your face. And so I pray that we would do that for one another. Pray that we would thank you for the work you're doing and pray that you would continue that work among us. Thank you for all you've done. It's in Christ's name we pray, amen.